Today's interview is with the Right Honorable Kim Campbell. We're going to be talking about the invitation for leaders to consider themselves as being a good ancestor and what do we need to do to create the future that we want our children and grandchildren or the friends of our children to live into. Kim, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and then let's jump into our conversation. Well, I come to the leadership community from the fact that I held a number of leadership roles, most significant perhaps being that I'm still the first woman and only woman to have been Prime Minister of Canada. I also served my country as Minister of National Defense. I was the first woman defense minister, first woman to be Minister of Justice and Attorney General. I held elected office at all three levels of government in Canada. In 1993, my party lost an election in a devastating campaign, and that was the end of my political career. So since then, I've tried to use what I learned in what I think of as one of the most remarkable schools of democracy, which was serving at three levels of Canadian government and understanding how democracies work, good democracies, even though they're not perfect, and understanding the challenges of them and the ability to live with their imperfections. And so since that time, I've done a lot of things and I've helped to create two organizations of of leaders, the Council of Women World Leaders, which is current and former women presidents and prime ministers, of whom there's a growing number, the Club of Madrid, which is the largest forum of former democratically elected presidents and prime ministers, the International Leadership Association, I've been involved with it. Um, I sit on the board of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization and Political Violence at King's College in London. I've just agreed to sit on an advisory board for an anti-corruption center in Vancouver. It's an institute that a center for criminal law reform that I helped to create when I was justice minister. So things that, that I was interested in in my early years in politics still continue to interest me. I'm very committed to the advancement of women, do a lot of speaking about women, I created a college, a leadership college at the University of Alberta in 2014. So how people think, how leaders are prepared, and how we can get ourselves out of this terrible mess we're in as the human species, these are the things that I think about now. And when you spoke about being a good ancestor, I think... We need to think of ourselves as ancestors, that there are a lot of people who have dynastic interests that want to do things to pass stuff on to their families and stuff. But I don't know, the the idea of an ancestor is, you know, what our ancestors bequeath to us is very important. And we could be the ancestors that screw it all up for future generations. Imagine being the ancestors where your future generations, you know, spit on your grave or denounce you or talk about how terrible you were. And that's what we're facing if we don't deal primarily with climate change, but I think also with the uh, threats to democracy and resurgent authoritarianism. They're all tied together because they all impact on the ability of individual human beings to flourish and achieve their potential. I would love for our listeners to get to kind of hang out with us in Geneva as we're having a chat and just hear a little bit about what you're thinking over the arc of your life and career. We're now here, hopefully post-COVID or entering post-COVID. You and I spoke first in Ottawa pre-COVID, so about two years ago, and a lot's changed since then. How is that shaping what you think and what you choose to do in, and I want to say you're a privileged position? You've certainly worked incredibly hard to get here, and now you're in a position of former prime minister. 
first Prime Minister of Canada, having held all three levels of government roles, you have a view to the world and a voice that is rare and precious. Well, it's interesting because what I'm trying to figure out is how I can continue to be part of the conversation because I no longer have a formal role. I have a formal role in, in different organizations, but I'm really trying to give serious thought to whether I should, you know, create a podcast or, or you know, how I can... Because what I find is... I think a lot of our problems, a lot of the, the negative things that I see affecting our societies are based a lot on ignorance. And by ignorance, I don't just mean that we don't all you know, know the secrets of physics, et cetera. But I think in particular, the narratives that we create about our history serve our purposes. We like to create narratives that don't challenge our position, particularly if we have a privileged position. And I often say that it's my commitment to advancing women that is the portal through which I have come into a world where I'm concerned not just about women as people who are not necessarily given the opportunities they should have or appreciate it, but people of color, people of disability, people, the non-prototypical people in any society, and they can be defined differently in any society. But when I was young and you know, somebody would say to me, well, you know, you're a smart kid, but where's the female Einstein? And I didn't have an answer. But there are, in fact, a lot of women who have created foundational work in the sciences, in astronomy, in physics, in chemistry, in all sorts of, of areas. But we don't know about them. Because if they are not prototypical, their stories fall off the radar screen. I mean, it's, that's why I was part of creating the Council of Women World Leaders. Because most people have no idea how many women have been presidents or prime ministers in the world. A lot of them have. I think probably we're getting around 60 now or more. But if you don't think of that as being a normal thing, you don't remember them. It slips out of your mind because they don't occupy a place in your mind of somebody who kind of belongs and that you kind of plug them into your awareness of who's leaders or not. And when I look at the lives of some of these women who did these amazing things and created extraordinary contributions, and you look at how hard it was for many of them to even be able to do their field. There's one woman, a mathematician, and I should go back to the website of the Perimeter Institute to um, remind myself of her name. But she was a woman in Germany in the 19th century who wanted to study mathematics. And her father didn't think that was an appropriate thing for girls. But a neighbor knew that she had this passion as a young woman and said to her father, well, you know, why won't you let her study mathematics? So the father relented and she was able to study, but she had great difficulty getting access to opportunities to study. And then when she became a, she got a doctorate or something, but she couldn't get a, an academic job. She had a terrible time trying to be able to pursue her profession, but she did work that is still used today. Wow. It's still foundational. And there are many examples of this, of women scientists who had to work as assistants in their husband's labs who could not get faculty positions. And so when you think of how those women, many of them, have made foundational contributions to science, and then you think, well, what about all the other ones who didn't have a neighbor, who didn't have the opportunity to break out of the constraints? You know, what have we lost, you know, as a species when 
those minds have not been working. But it's not just women. It's also many people disadvantaged in some way, people of color, not allowed to study, not allowed to get jobs, indigenous people. And so when we don't see those people on our radar screen, we think it's because they haven't earned the right to be there because they don't do that sort of thing. When they actually do and have, and often their contributions have been used without crediting them at all. I mean, there's just thousands of examples that I don't want to get into them because it just brings out the homicidal maniac in me when I think <laughs> about it. But we think about these people and they are doing it and we don't recognize them. Just give you an, an example. I was at a, a meeting which led me to say that we will never have a, a more fair and just future until we have a more fair and just history when the, our narrative is inclusive enough. And I was at an, a meeting that followed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada about the Indigenous children in residential schools. And the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia was at this meeting. That's the Queen's representative. So it was like the head of state, not the politician. And she said that she had just come from a meeting with First Nations war veterans. And most Canadians do not know that our Indigenous people enlisted in World War II at the highest numbers proportionate to their population. Also, no Canadian who went overseas was a conscript that you had to volunteer. So when you look at all the war graves around the world of Canadians who died in World War II, they were all volunteers. And when our First Nations people came back from the war and from serving overseas in very often in very difficult circumstances, they were treated very badly. They were not accepted. They weren't welcomed into the legions and things like that. And so a lot of people have no idea that there is this whole cadre of Native Indians, First Nations, Indigenous people, whatever people are calling them, who served bravely in the Canadian Armed Forces and died for Canada and the cause of freedom in World War II. So the kinds of pieces of the puzzle that lead us to respect people, African-Americans who served in the military in World War II were treated terribly. But what happens is that then your sense of what's real, I'm talking about intellectual contributions, people who really made a difference to how we live, and we don't know about them. So we live feeling that they don't belong or we don't need to respect them. And that's the beginning of a worldview that's exclusionary. Is telling the story, it doesn't do justice to what was done, but does it help restore a bit of the balance? Well, I think telling the story, first of all, helps people to see their world differently. You know, how do we see the world as it really is? Like I remember after 9-11 and all the anti-Muslim feeling, people say, well, what did the Muslims ever contribute? They never contributed anything. And you go, well, how about Al Jabra? You know, there was a period of time when Muslim empires, Muslim civilizations mm -hmm. were, first of all, often quite diverse and inclusive, but also made huge contributions to science. And there's a book called Stealing from the Saracens that says there's a lot of the architecture, like Notre Dame and places like that in, in Paris, these were architectural forms that were actually borrowed from the Muslim mm. societies in the Middle East. But we don't know that. And the interesting thing about those empires and those 
political forces, is the thing that changed them was religious fundamentalism. That as they began to change, they became less tolerant and open. It also cut them off from a lot of their scientific inquiries because they had made huge contributions to medicine, to astronomy, to mathematics. I mean, a lot of the foundation of our modern science came from that part of the world. And many people have no idea of that, who the people were who devised these. You know, we talk about using Arabic numbers, you know, well, hello, hello, hello. Because before Arabic numbers, we used Roman numerals and, you know, try to do a multiplication with a Roman numeral, you know, it doesn't work. So there were huge contributions, but we're, but we're ignorant about them. And that enables us then to feel superior, to feel hatred, to feel disdain. And that creates a whole foundation for a distortion of how we use power and how we face the issues and how we see people. So, you know, I feel that I, I have learned so much. I think I'm a much more knowledgeable, open tolerance, maybe the wrong word, but appreciative and admiring person of a vast, diverse group of people now than I was when I was young. I see people that don't look like me differently now because, you know, I mean, I, I'm part of an organization, the Club of Madrid, where some of our members are Africans and these are amazing and some of them are freedom fighters. Like, you know, these are just wonderful people. And I've just met so many people who, when I was young, would not have been part of my, my world, my orbit, that I now see is so, is so amazing. And that's, you know, the challenge is how do we open up people's minds? You've started a, a leadership program, the Club of Madrid, the group of female presidents, all of which are diverse, mm. because you've already created a platform. It sounds like more extending how does that extend in a way that more people can gain the perspective that you've gained? Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, we now have, you know, remarkable opportunities like what you do with with a podcast. And the, and the thing about podcasting, I think, is that there's a kind of a, a gentle, civilized, non-hectoring quality about it that is very appealing to people that they can, in the privacy of their own smartphones or computers or whatever, listen to conversations and ideas. But the question is, how do you get somebody to be interested to listen? I mean, I think about white supremacy. I, I, I see so many people, people of color who do great things, and I will say to myself, now there's a walking argument against white supremacy. White supremacy is a vicious, vile, and totally unfounded way of seeing the world. But if that's how you see the world, then you're going to be wanting to move your society in a very different direction. And we see what's happening in the United States. I mean, all of this effort to constrain the votes is to keep black people from being enfranchised on the false assumption that somehow they're inferior, which is totally wrong. The part of the impetus for me to continue this podcast, and I've never said this publicly, was some of the white supremacist activity and some other activity that I found contrary to anything I believe is appropriate in a democratic society. And you talked before about where do I fit into the mosaic of activity and of history. And my commitment was for the negativity that we're seeing go into the system, we're also seeing positivity. And for me to create a conversation every week that is designed to be constructive, productive, informative, enlightening, whatever words people assign to it, is my way of contributing to expanding. It's free. It's non-exclusive. It's traveling around the world. Now you have to be able to speak English or maybe on YouTube you can do a translator. But my commitment was how do I as one individual help 
in my view of help. I realize there are other people who think I'm completely nuts, but how do I contribute to the positive outcome of growth of leaders and people who are not just in formal roles, but in informal roles, leading their PTAs and teaching children and coaching soccer leagues, as well as CEOs and senior executives that work directly with me. And so I really appreciate that commitment and that you're sharing your wisdom with people who have chosen to listen. Well, I think also, and maybe it is, you know, because I'm at a stage of my life where I realize, you know, I don't have that sense of the endless horizon that you have when you're young and how you're going to do things and change the world. So, I mean, maybe the answer is just to realize that I know, you know, I have discovered all sorts of wonderful people who've done things and I didn't really know about them. You know, the New York Times, there overlooked no more feature in their obituary column that they started a few years ago to try and celebrate the lives of people who were not the usual suspects. White men, usually, they now broaden it. When I see things that people have done, I have to be encouraged at the capacity of human beings to be wonderful, to be brave, to be imaginative, to be generous, to be kind, and all of those things. And maybe as you get towards, you know, sort of the last part of your life and you're worried about you know, what you haven't done and, you know, what you could do. Maybe you simply have to learn to be philosophical and to accept the fact that we all do what we can do. And sometimes some people find themselves in a time and a place where they can do something special. You know, if you're Winston Churchill and you've had not a very successful political career, but World War II happens and you're the right person in the right place in the right time, and partly because you were an outsider, it makes you more acceptable to be the leader, et cetera, et cetera. And he was far from perfect, but he had certain skills that turned out to be really important at that time. So when the stars align to put somebody in a place at that time, it can be really quite wonderful. But that's not really how human progress has happened. It's happened in a much more fragmented and diverse kind of way. So when we're young, we think, you know, I want to be a leader like Winston Churchill or Genghis Khan. Or I mean, you know, somebody who really, you know, was out there and made a difference. I'm not suggesting you should want to be Genghis Khan, although, you know, he invented diplomatic immunity. He was actually quite interesting. But I think that maybe it's hard to balance off your worry about what's happening in the world. And I think also for somebody in my generation, the sense that that you can see things that you thought were gains being, being threatened. Mm. And that's really hard. Democracy is now being threatened with anti-democratic tendencies, rights for certain people, all sorts of things. And even for women, you know, it's never a, a smooth ride for women, that women are always the canaries in the mine when it comes to people wanting to erode our liberties, that women and their their bodies are, you know, the one of the most important targets. So I think that worries me in, in the sense that, you know, I, I'm not going to sort of die happy that, you know, we've made all this progress and leave it to the next generation to make even more. I think that's my concern, that things may get worse Although I think of other times in history, you know, I have often, maybe we had this conversation before about how I've often wondered, you know, compared to how I feel today, how did my parents feel in the 1930s and, you know, with the rise of fascism and, you know, when the war broke out and you know, when the Nazis moved in the fall of France and the Nazis moved into the low countries. And I mean, people must have thought, oh, my gosh, this is the end and what's going to happen. So maybe things have to be kind of disastrous to consolidate the will of, of good people. But I don't think one can be complacent. 
I don't feel I can say, oh, well, it will all work out because it doesn't always work out. Or it may eventually work out, but at huge cost of suffering of people who have had to make the ultimate sacrifice to try and turn things around. I'm a baby boomer, and maybe people of my generation will be feeling, what can we do? It's interesting because it isn't true that older people are less interested in climate change. I just saw a study that showed that actually baby boomers are, are often prepared to do more to make greater sacrifices to deal with the problem of climate change. But I think that the challenge for me personally is, you know, what is the way that I will do this? Can I continue to make a contribution? And if so, how can I do that? But I think it's also true that we are now looking at issues where the sense of the impact on future generations and young people and the Greta Thunbergs of this world who are out there, you know, speaking truth to power, you know, and as she says that all that she's hearing is blah, blah, blah. And you know, and I have to say, you know, I can't really criticize that. But how, when she presents that moral challenge, you are stealing my future and not dealing with this, how it is that people can still turn away and say, well, no, can't deal with it. The study I saw today is 99.9% .9 of scientists now agree yeah. that climate change is either caused or significantly influenced by humans. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a scientific consensus. I mean, there are always a few outliers. There are people who are outliers for the sake of being outliers. I read some doctor who was prescribing ivermectin, which is an antiparasitical medicine for COVID. I mean, that person should lose their medical license. That is such a perverse thing. But those kinds of perversities are also so dangerous because they undermine our sense of evidence-based decision-making. And the thing that bothers me about that challenge is that Science is not without its problems. There are politics in science. It's not pure. And then, of course, even the best science often gets overtaken by new research that often is made possible by new technologies and things, things that we weren't able to see before. Now we can see, and it changes our minds about how things work. So science is an ongoing process. And it's harder to have that conversation when you have people challenging the very fundamental basis of it so that you're back here saying, well, no, there are things that we know. For example, we now know that COVID is an aerosol. At first, they thought maybe it was droplets, which is a different set of challenges. We know that. And, you know, it's not a hoax and it's a terrible disease. And we know that vaccines are very effective and we have to keep improving them and maybe we need to keep getting more boosters. I mean, there's lots of diseases where you have to get a vaccine every year where it isn't something that, that one does you for life. Those understandings, it's hard to have intelligent conversations about the ways in which those understandings may be overtaken by better research, but they're not going to be overtaken by uninformed conspiracy theories and wacko opinions from people who don't know their proverbial from a hole in the ground. So it makes the civilized and humane process of trying to make decisions that affect people so hard. Close to 700,000 Americans have died of COVID. Unconscionable, those unnecessary deaths. The early ones we didn't know, yeah. but the later ones, I heard a study a week ago 
where treatments are delayed. So cancer patients and even people in car wrecks, there are no beds in some towns. Your hospitals are now choosing between a person who's just been hit by a car, shot by a bullet, or unvaccinated. Yeah. And so people who made very deliberate conscious choices to be responsible, and I realize that's subjective, are diminishing the health of other people who don't get those beds because they're a lower priority, even though not receiving cancer treatment will reduce their life expectancy. No, I mean, it's just the morality. And the fact is that unvaccinated people are like little walking Petri dishes. They're helping the virus to mutate to create even more virulent and infectious forms because the Delta variant, one of the things that characterizes it is just how much more contagious it is, how much more successful this version of the virus is in getting into people. And so you see somebody like Colin Powell who had cancer. He was vaccinated, but he was uniquely vulnerable, not uniquely, but it was particularly vulnerable mm-hmm. because of his illness. And who knows who he was exposed to but very likely somebody who wasn't vaccinated. Could have been one of his grandkids. Yeah. Not because they're irresponsible, but because they're children. Yeah. Until we are committed to protecting people, because even though we're vaccinated, it's not 100%. It's likely to reduce the seriousness of the illness. But if we have pre-existing conditions that compromise our immunity and make us more vulnerable, then our lives are shortened. I see a lot of efforts that people are making, organizations like the European Community, European Union, and other kind of official organizations as well, looking to try and challenge disinformation, which of course has been dramatically increased by social media. The people on Facebook have the moral sensibility of war criminals. These are people who knew what they were doing in so many different areas where they knew the kind of falsehoods and what their algorithms were doing to distort things and and give people bad information and destructive information. But there is a lot of commitment to fighting disinformation, and some of that may result in regulation of social media. Also psychological research, trying to understand how it is that people come to the conclusions they do and what are ways that you can actually talk to people around strong, polarized points Mm -hmm. of view. So I'm not the only one that's worried about (laughs) that. And people who are a lot smarter and better equipped than I am are working to try and find strategies to deal with these things. But I wish wish that the world I was living in, you know, even around the time when I was defeated as prime minister, that world was not as scary a world. I wonder for you, all of the disorientation and whatever word you use, chaos or whatever, It is at those moments at times that we can make the biggest progress. Is there anything that makes you hopeful? Well, I mean, I think that things like the terrible fires in California, some of the disasters, the heat waves in Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia, which were so life-threatening heat experiences. I think a lot of people who were on the fence about climate change are not anymore. And I think there is a growing, not just willingness, but demand on the part of publics to deal with it. I always say that you have to create a constituency for good policymaking. And I think more and more that's happening. But I think there is also an interesting development of people wanting to hold people to account. And I think that the people who have used their corporate power to try to convince people that the science was uncertain those are crimes against humanity because those are deliberate steps 
Negligence is one thing. If somebody just doesn't know, and we, we all worry that someday we might do something with the best of intentions that turns out to be destructive and bad, and that would be terrible. But people who knew, I think they have to be held to account. Whether you can take them to the war crimes tribunal at The Hague or just simply name and shame them, I don't know. But I think there's a less tolerance. I mean, it's like the tobacco industry where the heads of the tobacco companies testified with a straight face that they didn't think that tobacco was, was addictive or that it wasn't harmful. They all knew they were lying, but we've come to that same situation with fossil fuels. You know, one of the ones that is encouraging to me is the Me Too movement, because I imagine you have personally or have people close to you who've dealt with some pretty heinous, inappropriate behavior, that we are now in a place where we can say it and say it without being diminished or ridiculed, that it happened to me because I wasn't enough, not because the person who did it was being grossly inappropriate. It's much more prevalent than you might think. I actually just had a conversation recently with somebody who was in the middle of one of those controversies and, and so that people phone her and contact her and it's just astonishing. This is in an academic setting, how prevalent it is. And I don't think that we've solved the problem. It's funny, some of the the offenders were people that I didn't think were necessarily the worst. I mean, they should have been held accountable, but they were maybe people who were a little too grabby. It's sort of a A continuum. continuum. They, They weren't the worst. But again, the thing about that that bothers me so much, it's not just that somebody would think that women's bodies are the spoils of power, and that's been the case for a long time. The opening of the Odyssey is, you know, Agamemnon doesn't want to give up the girl that he was given as a war trophy. But that when women did not wish, you know, or pushed back on the sexual advances, the men sought to destroy them, destroy their careers. Mm-hmm. And it happens, whether it's in academia or in the film industry, business, people who have worked so hard to break down barriers and they see it all at risk. And if people will not stand up for them and support them, I mean, it's just awful, but but it's that vindictiveness. And I think that, to me, is what makes it such a profound crime because it is a desire to hurt. And if I can't exercise my power over you this way, I'm going to exercise it another way by making sure you will rue the day Mm-hmm. You didn't accept my advances. And I've seen it happen in non-sexual ways also that are still, you don't want to do the deeds I ask you to do, often unethical. And if you're not willing to follow my command or my dictates, you'll get punished. The president of the United States, who is vindictiveness personified. And former president. Former president, yeah. You know, when people who voted to impeach him He's trying to drive them out of office or the people who won't stand up for his big lie. It's a way of behaving. And if people see it being rewarded, then it spreads. So anyway, we could get very depressed thinking about this. But as you say, sometimes you can get to a point where people will speak out. I've read that, you know, some men don't really understand how offensive it is to women. I just think that be interesting for some of these men to experience unwanted touching, etc. I just think it's very hard for somebody to understand what it means to not have the integrity of your own body. We're struggling with these things, and it's all about power. You know, it's about the power of, of companies to pursue their businesses, irrespective of the effect on the climate. It's about political power and 
the desire to run roughshod over democratic norms that require you to recognize that other people have power too, and you don't want to share it. And it's the power over other people's bodies. It's the power to use whatever leverage you have, not just to satisfy yourself. Because I think a lot of those sexual experiences, it's not the sex that people want. It's the, I can force you to do something that I know you find repulsive. It would be remiss not to also mention the spiritual communities. Mm -hmm. And the Catholic Church is the most visible, but certainly not the only offender. And when we have looked to other institutions, my work as the penultimate, or my church as the governing body, or my government, and putting power outside of ourselves, in my view, there's almost an invitation to deep soul searching, which can feel like complete loss of trust and such. But deep soul searching into where do we now, going forward, place our trust and our effort so that we can, back to the theme, be good ancestors? Well, I think we have to conclude that human beings are wonderful and they're also terrible, that we are capable of doing appalling things to one another but that we're also capable of uplifting one another, that we're also capable of using our brains and our imaginations and our strength to do things that improve lives of people, that make the world a better place. So it's a struggle. There's so many of us now that it sort of narrows our room to maneuver. If there were only 2 billion people on the face of the earth today, we might have a longer time span for dealing with something like climate change because there would be, you know, five billion fewer people breathing and driving their cars and eating cows. Yeah, <laughs> you know, all of those things. So as our population grows, I mean, the funny thing is that, that, you know, we created a world in which we could finally feed people and the population went crazy. And I'm not going to go around and say, you know, well, you shouldn't be born or you shouldn't be born. I mean, I think the answer is to to try and create circumstances where Birth rates are, are what people want them to be because a lot of women have more children than they want to have in some countries. But that also that we recognize that the other side of the coin of that remarkable prosperity that enabled the population to grow is a huge responsibility to protect the earth from the impact that all of us have. And one would think with all those people, we'd have more minds that could be focused on it, but it's the politics of it. And Several years ago, I was involved in a conference in London where there was a writer, Anatole Levin, who used to write for the Financial Times. And he wrote, this was after the, the Stern Report came out, oh, at least 10 years ago. This was a, a British economist, and I think it was, might have been the House of Lords, but who chaired a commission that produced a report that looked at what the cost would be of dealing with climate change. And there were two versions of his report. The early report was a little more pessimistic about how expensive it would be. And then years later, he did another one, which showed that actually there were huge economic advantages to tackling climate change. When that report came out, it really elevated the profile of the issue. And Anatole even wrote that if the democracies of this world cannot deal with this issue, it will forever discredit democratic governance in the eyes of future generations future generations will spit on our graves. And that's what's so important, is it's not just that we're not dealing with it. It's that the message it sends is, well, you know, why should I care about democracy? Why should I worry about being a citizen? Why should I vote? 
because they can't do anything anyway. But that means we also have to challenge those forces that are undermining the constituency for good policy. We have to go after the people who are creating the pressures that make it hard for politicians to act. Steve Williams, I think his name, the head of one of the big oil companies in Canada a number of years ago, said, you know, climate change is real and the climate science is real. And then he was criticizing climate deniers and he said, and the politicians who pander to them. And I thought, what do you mean the politicians who pander to them? You're part of an industry that spent millions of dollars creating front organizations to persuade people that the science of climate change was uncertain. You didn't try to say it wasn't that there wasn't anything in it because you knew that you couldn't do that. That would be beyond credible. But just persuade people that it was sufficiently uncertain that to take the risks of expenditures that you might not need to make, that's the really hard thing for politicians. Because spending public money, if you then say, well, we don't really need to do this, or we don't need to make the sacrifice, we don't have to stop doing this, all you have to do is create that doubt, and nobody's going to get in your way. So I think we're, we're in a pickle. I do see signs of progress, and I do think that the very nature of what we're dealing with and the effect it's having on us through fires and floods and weather disrupted and what it's going to mean for food crops and all of these. We're Already. seeing, we're seeing, yeah. Yeah, we're seeing extinctions, we're seeing effects on agriculture, etc. that it's just going to get to the point where it's not credible not to deal with it. Does that mean that the world can come together and deal with it? I don't know. I've always felt that it would be the money, that insurance companies would stop insuring. They already are. Yeah and that we're going to be sued, or that the market would wind up you know, making climate denying untenable. But it's a messy and painful process to get there. I wonder, and this was one of the trends I wrote for this year, and we'll see if it proves true, that organizations will start relocating manufacturing facilities to locations that are less susceptible to volatility. So companies will move out of fire zones in California, out of flood zones in, in the Midwest. But that leaves a much smaller footprint to do business. Are they starting to consider that mobility now while they still can? Well, there are floodplains where people are just not rebuilding because you can't. They shouldn't have been built on in the first place. So whether people are saying, oh, I don't believe in climate change, they believe in it enough to know that the rising oceans is not a theoretical possibility, it's happening. Yeah, we went to Mont Blanc yesterday and we looked at where were the glaciers. It's impossible to deny yeah. the shrinkage of glaciers and what that does then to rising sea levels, changing drinking water. And for the first time in modern history, it has rained on Greenland's ice fields. It's a very scary prospect when we know how much ice is there and what is melting. Mm-hmm. need for the level of the oceans. Wake up, people. Anyway, I think the bottom line is having these kinds of conversations helps people to be aware that they're not alone if they're worried about this and that no one of us is going to solve the problem. Some individuals, I think like a Greta Thunberg, who has, mm-hmm. I think, galvanized a lot of interest and certainly managed to, to galvanize a youth movement that's gone you know, even far beyond it, which is, which is really great that young people have picked it up. If each of us, in our own way, can try to be a searcher for truth, 
an activist and a person who tries to live as much as possible consistent with things that are healthy for the planet. And if we try to, to envision ourselves as being a good ancestor, somebody that future generations will look back and say, yes, that person helped to contribute mm -hmm. to a quality of life that, you know, the good parts of it, or help to save our lives and our ability to enjoy the earth. Because I go back to what I said at the beginning. I think there may be other planets with life in galaxies throughout the universe. But there are scientists who argue that the combination of factors that enabled us to emerge on this planet is very complex and very hit and miss and very serendipitous. So we may be the only ones. But even if we're one of 100,000, we're the only one in this galaxy. How can we not cherish and steward and preserve this wonderful planet? And if you are religious, if you are a believer, because I think to believe that the earth was made by God is actually another way of saying it was made by forces that we can't understand, that we can't control, and that we have no reason to believe there are any others. And how could you not respect a great intelligence that created something as remarkable as our earth? I suppose those who don't worry about it think that God gave man dominion over the earth to do whatever, whatever he wanted to do. But that's a pretty cheesy view of a deity, in my view. I can't imagine a deity who would create something. And if it's a female, she would never do it. Uh, <laughs> to create something and then not give a darn about whether you know your creatures ruined it. So however you come to it, it's a miracle. And each one of us represents also a set of cosmic coincidences that has resulted in something that only we can appreciate the value of, I think. And uh, we need to preserve that capacity for those yet to come. You know, I love the native mindset of seven generations forward. And also we live in harmony with all beings. Not that I have dominion over, but absent harmony, we end up killing ourselves. When I was a little girl, it became much more common for people to talk about the ecology and, and the whole interconnectedness of life forms and how if you wiped out one species, the unintended consequences that would have on other species. And I think that that's all conventional wisdom now. We understand how interrelated we are. And our indigenous people you know, had that understanding. Anyway, we have an opportunity to be wise. We have an opportunity to learn from people beyond our own little narrow places that we live, our own little narrow environments. If we do that, we can justify, whether it's the faith of serendipity or the faith of a deity that allowed us to be on this wonderful, wonderful planet. But I find I'm at the stage of my life where I'm worried about it and worried about finding a way of continuing to try and make a, a contribution. But I think that there are so many wonderful people doing wonderful things that I should probably lighten up a little bit and have some confidence <laughs> in them too. And their ability to be inspired by you. I was in a restaurant recently telling the young woman who was helping us who wants to go to law school. And so we take time to get to know people. And I told her that I was getting to interview you. And she is such a big fan. She's 20. Hmm. Abby is a big fan. You have so many people looking to you who you will have no idea who they are. And yet 
there are so many people who you will never meet, but whose lives you will change through what you've done, through the conversations you're having. That would be a wonderful thing. And I take the opportunity to, to try and encourage young women. And I'm, I'm going in December to be part of a celebration of the 100th anniversary of women in the Canadian Parliament. But I'm still disappointed that I'm the only woman who's been prime minister. But I certainly meet lots of young women who have every intention of being prime minister. So I should keep myself healthy so I can be around to cheer when they finally get there. So. And that you are still the only living prime minister creates hope for every young woman. Who living is, female. Yeah, the, the one in place right now is living too. The only living female prime minister is an inspiration for every young woman who comes along and says, I can do that now. I've seen it. We still don't have it in the U.S., yeah. but we do in Canada. And our American young girls can look to you, and they do. But I also have to remind people, 65 million Americans voted for a woman for president in 2016. Three million more than voted for the person who held the office. So however disappointing that was, it certainly is not evidence that Americans are not prepared to vote for a woman. I was just speaking to the young women who don't yet have a woman in the U.S. to say... I can do that because she did, but we do in you. And around the world, there are more and more. Mm -hmm. So as those women change the landscape that tells us who gets to do that job, then it becomes a more normal, ordinary thing. And that's what you really want is you want to be wanted to be taken for granted that, yes, somebody who looks and sounds like you does that job and in many cases does it well. Although you have to also allow people to be failures or have disappointments mm -hmm. because if you don't, then you make it harder for people to, to try. You know, when, when men fail, we don't say, oh, well, that's the last time we'll vote for a man. <laughs> yeah, we don't have enough women yet that we have the luxury of a big flame out. Well, the other thing I would say, and maybe it's a nice note to end our conversation on, because women are still struggling in many ways, but I look at somebody like Angela Merkel, who, first of all, looks totally different from what people's stereotypes were of what a woman mm -hmm. should be to be chancellor of Germany or a president or something. She's totally non-glamorous. She doesn't wear skirts. She does color her hair. She thinks that women should color her hair. There's an infinite variety of colored jackets that she wears. She is herself. But by being there for a long time, she's kind of reprogrammed our expectations of what a political leader looks like. And when she became leader of the Christian Democrats in Germany, I was talking to one of my Club of Madrid friends and said, you know, the Christian Democrats have elected a woman leader. Germany could have a female chancellor. And he said, oh, no, if they win, she won't be the chancellor. He couldn't bring himself to accept that they would actually have a female chancellor, you know, after Helmut Kohl and mm -hmm. Helmut Schmidt and all this. Well, now, all these years later, she's leaving office voluntarily but as one of the most respected leaders in the world. In the world. Yeah. And it's not that she has not had failures. I mean, some people argue that she didn't do enough for Germany's digitization and all that kind of stuff. But she is seen by many people as having been incredibly important in preserving the Euro European Union and, and democracy, etc. And it almost doesn't matter what the reasons are. It's that she is seen that way. And every little girl ought to take comfort in that because she defied the stereotype. She was a kind of woman that she wanted to be. She did not want to be glamorous. She did not want to be somebody else's idea. She was a chemist. She was a scientist. She was the daughter of a clergyman. She grew up in East Germany. And now everybody thinks, what are we going to 
do now that she's gone? So that's how we change our expectations of who gets to do that job. So go for it, young women. Thank you. You are amazing. Mm-hmm.